0: Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job every episode to deconstruct world-class performers of all different types to tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, who knows what that you can hopefully emulate or apply in your own lives. My guest today is none other than Scott Kelly at Station CDR Kelly on Twitter, and elsewhere. Scott is a former military fighter pilot and test pilot and engineer, a retired astronaut, and retired U.S. Navy captain. A veteran of four space flights, Kelly commanded the International Space Station, ISS, on three expeditions and was a member of the year-long mission aboard the ISS, the single longest space mission by an American astronaut. In October 2015, he set the American record for the total accumulated number of days spent in space. Go for Launch, How to Dream, Lead, and Achieve is Kelly's two-hour audio course available exclusively on Knowable. In this candid and entertaining audio course, Scott shares instructive stories from his childhood in New Jersey, his days as a U.S. Navy test pilot, and his year hurtling around the globe at 17,500 miles per hour and teaches hard-earned lessons on perseverance, Personal motivation and the human side of success, drawn from his experiences in the most competitive, extreme environments imaginable. You can find it now at knowable. That's K N O W A B L E. F Y I forward slash Scott. You can find him on social, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at station CDR Kelly. And before we jump into the interview, I want to play you one lesson from Scott's audio course. The lesson is titled The Smartest Person on the Mission, and it really highlights decision making under pressure a superpower of his. Also, after the interview ends, I'll share two more of Scott's lessons, so be sure to stick around.
1: Sometimes in space, you get a call from a third grade classroom that wants to see what it looks like to go to the bathroom in zero gravity. Other times, you get a call from Mission Control saying there's a hole the size of a golf ball in a heat shield and you might burn up on re-entry. I got that call a day or so into commanding my first and only space shuttle mission. A similar issue had killed seven of my colleagues on Columbia a few years earlier. We could do a spacewalk to try to repair the heat shield, but spacewalks are extremely risky on their own, and there was always a danger we could just damage the heat shield more while trying to fix it. But if we left the hole as it was, the heat of reentry might tear the space shuttle apart. As commander, I had a lot of say in what our approach was going to be. It would have been tempting to make a quick decision on my own, but over the years I've spent leading and following, I've learned that the best decisions aren't made that way. Instead, I found a good time to take each crew member aside, one by one, in private. I kept a picture of the heat shield damage and a printout of some analysis from the ground in my back pocket so I'd be able to take advantage of a quiet moment. I made sure I spoke to each of my crew members individually to get their honest opinions. I took this to such an extreme that I asked everyone I could. I even asked the astronaut and Russian cosmonauts who weren't coming back with us on Endeavour. Why not call a meeting? Why not make a decision together as a group? Well, I've seen what can happen when people try to make decisions in groups. One person will offer an opinion, and if that person is knowledgeable or well-respected, Everyone else might go along with what they said. Groupthink sets in. People aren't even conscious of doing this sometimes. It's something we do as a social species to get along, and it's often a useful instinct. But in a case like this, it could be deadly. There's a sign on the wall in a meeting room at NASA. None of us is as dumb as all of us. And it's a lesson NASA had to learn the hard way. It's part of what went wrong with the Columbia accident and with Challenger before it. People who raised concerns were silenced because groupthink had taken over. With the input of my crew and after thorough analysis, we decided, along with flight controllers and leaderships on the ground, that coming back with the hole in the heat shield posed less of a risk than attempting a repair. And the uh, the gouge goes pretty much through the entire thickness of the tile itself is uh, 1.2 inches thick. We fired the deorbit engines, and as we came out of darkness and started hitting the atmosphere, the plasma field, the fire outside the space shuttle, continued to build. Pretty soon we were in a 3,000 degree fireball, falling towards Earth at an incredible speed. Me and my entire crew were mostly silent as we approached the point where the Space Shuttle Columbia had come apart. As we transitioned through that altitude, my pilot Scorch said, passing through peak heating. Understand, I replied. I let about 20 seconds go by and added, looks like we dodged that bullet, as we all reflected on the loss of our seven colleagues. About 30 minutes later, we landed safely at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. But this kind of decision making can help in other places too. Places like a level one trauma center in Tucson, Arizona. When my sister in law, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, was shot in 2011, I was in space halfway through a six month mission. My brother Mark was constantly having to make difficult decisions about her care. He found himself in meetings with many of her caretakers, trauma surgeons, brain surgeons, neurologists. But instead of just hearing out the top doctor or more experienced expert, Mark would go a step further. He would find one quiet person in the back of the room and ask them who they were. I'm just an intern, they might say, or I'm just a nurse. But Mark didn't care what the person's training was. What do you think? He would ask. What are we missing? What are we overlooking? Even if they hadn't been there long, their opinion mattered and he learned valuable information by gathering as many perspectives as he could. I learned as much as seeing from how he handled Gabby's care as I did from anyone I flew with in space. The smartest person in the room, I've learned, is usually the person who knows how to tap into the intelligence of every person in the room.
0: This episode is brought to you by Rockform, that's without a C, R-O-K-F-O-R-M. Rockform is the active lifestyle iPhone and Galaxy protective case company. I've been using their stuff for a few months now, and good God, they can survive anything. First off, Rockform protection is beyond great. You can find thousands of five-star reviews and customer testimonials which the team at Rock Farm calls survival stories that include things like a drop from the upper deck of a baseball stadium and a 75-foot cell phone tower fall. It's kind of unbelievable, but these cases make your phone virtually indestructible. Each case is built also around an integrated magnet that is completely safe for your phone. The magnets are incredibly strong and allow you to instantly attach your device to any magnetic surface, toolboxes, file cabinets, refrigerators, golf carts, you name it. I use it in the gym to check my form a lot of the time. You can just slap it on just about anything. Rockform pioneered magnetic technology in the mobile accessory space in 2011 and I've never seen anything quite like these magnets. I will use mine on my Peloton bike so I can watch, listen, or take calls during workouts. It fits my iPhone 11 Pro Max perfectly and allows me to keep my hands free for all sorts of stuff. All their cases also come with a built-in twist lock system that can be used with any of Rockform's optional mounts for bike, motorcycle, car, and much more. These machined aluminum mounts are built to last and are compatible with every Rockform case. So if you get a new phone or whatever, you just need a new case and it will still attach to all of the mounts. Rockform also has a portable golf speaker, this is Bluetooth, that instantly mounts to a golf cart with mind-blowingly strong magnets, like I mentioned. I don't really golf, but I will use this Bluetooth speaker to listen to music in the kitchen. I'll slap it on the refrigerator. I will use it in the gym and hang it from a carabiner, which is included with the speaker and so on and so forth so Upgrade to a Rockform case today because you have better things to hold on to. You can use your hands for other stuff. And like I mentioned, these things make your phone bulletproof. And as a special offer for Tim Ferriss Show listeners, that's you guys, get 25% off. That is a good discount. 25% off at rockform.com. That's R-O-K-F-O-R-M.com When you use promo code Tim, that's 25% off at R-O-K-F-O-R-M.com When you use promo code Tim, one more time, rockform.com, promo code Tim. This episode is brought to you by 99 Designs, the global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find and work with amazing graphic designers online. Longtime listeners of this podcast know how much attention I pay to detail, how obsessively I approach nearly all elements of my work, because the small things often end up being the big things. So whether it's your logo, your business cards, website design, even your email templates, all of these visual elements tell your customers, tell your users who you are and what you're about. So I think it's worth sweating the details. I've been using 99designs for years now to ensure that many of my creative projects, whether big or small, are as cohesive, professional, and beautiful as possible. I've worked on draft mock-ups of book covers. I've worked on all sorts of things. Most recently, I've been working with a designer at 99designs to update the illustrations and layouts for all of my downloadable ebooks. I've developed a really great working relationship with the designer who goes by the username Spoonlancer, and I intend to continue working with him to bring ideas to life one project at a time. I've also used 99designs for all sorts of high-end illustration for different books, like the Tau of Seneca. You can see a bunch of examples on my Instagram that I've put up and they've turned out better than I possibly could have hoped. So, from logos to websites to packaging to books, 99designs is the go-to creative resource to build your brand on any budget. So check them out. Right now, my listeners, that's you guys, can get $20 off, plus a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. A contest is a great way to get started and find the right designer for long-term work. You can also book a free design consultation with a brand expert at 99designs to receive personalized branding advice over the phone. Their hands-on team has helped thousands of business owners at this point. It's a great way to get the most out of your experience with 99designs. So, take a look. Head to 99designs.com slash Tim for your discount and to sign up for design consultation today. That's 99designs.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens.
1: Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire. And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com acquire. That's linkedin.com acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Optimal
0: minimal At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it's in the time. What if I did the album? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal and Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. And I wanted to start not with space, but with West Orange, New Jersey, in I suppose the '60s, and your mom specifically. Could you please speak to your mom's experience with joining the police force?
1: Well, that's a, uh, that's a good place to start with my mom because we all started with our moms. And really, this this all happened kind of in the late 70s and throughout the 80s where my dad was a cop in New Jersey and he was in my hometown of West Orange. He was one of those like stereotypical like Irish cop guys you'd see on TV. And uh, my mother was a secretary and a waitress various jobs she had at different times, and about the time my brother and I were becoming teenagers when she could spend more time at work, she decided that she wanted to have a career like my father's and was going to uh, attempt to become a police officer in her in hometown that never had a female police officer before. At the time, there were very few in the uh, state of New Jersey. You know, it was a challenging thing for her, especially the physical part of it, because you know, at that time, it was a physical fitness test was really designed for the men that were, were trying to become, you know, policemen and firefighters The civil service exams that included physical fitness portion. And it was a, a challenge that for her was not easy. But, you know, I saw her work really, really hard at this. And, you know, my dad helped her by setting up this obstacle course in her backyard. And, you know, when she first went out there, she was not uh, very successful. And, you know, I was a little bit skeptical, like I can remember, thinking, is she going to really be able to do this? But she, uh, you know, she had a goal that she wanted to achieve, a plan to get there, and uh, she was successful. And it was the first time in my life that I, I saw the, uh, the power of having this goal you think you might not be able to achieve, a plan to get there, and then working really, really hard at something. And I always wanted to thank my mom for giving that lesson to me and, uh, and my brother, Mark.
0: Is it true that the family or she built a mock-up wall in the backyard to practice climbing over in preparation for the police exam?
1: Yeah, like I, I was saying, my dad helped her and he, he built the whole, all this, the activities she would have to do in her, in her backyard, including a wall that was 7 foot 4 inches tall. He actually built it an inch taller without telling her. So she thought she was practicing on a you know a seven foot four inch wall and she was practicing on the one that was an inch taller. My dad thinking that might help her on the on the real day when she had the scale this thing that she would be overly prepared. yeah, the first time she went to climb over that, she probably got her foot a foot high and uh, fell off, fell back into the dirt. But I can remember her picking herself up, you know brushing herself off and you know just saying, I'm gonna just try to touch the top for now, and then, you know, once I can do that, I'll see how long I can hold on for. Maybe someday, eventually, I'll be able to do a pull up, and quite possibly at the end of the summer, perhaps be able to get over this wall. You know, some of the other tests was she had to drag a 130 pound dummy a hundred feet, and uh, we just happened to have a long backyard. I happened to at the time, weigh 130 pounds and also, <laughs> and also fit the role as a dummy because I wasn't particularly good at school. So, yeah, so with my help and uh, a summer of really hard work on her part and when she went to, to take that test, she uh, actually did better than a lot of the men did and became the very first female police officer in my hometown, one of the first in the entire state
0: she was off to the races you you just mentioned school and that's that's where i want to go next i think that many people listening have a certain i suppose archetypal narrative that they would impose on astronauts in terms of life story and they see star students knocking it out of the park knowing from the age of 3 they want to be in space etc you mentioned you weren't necessarily the, the best in school my understanding is you graduated in the bottom half of your high school class and uh, had various sort of misadventures along the way. What happened in terms of course correction, if there was a particular course correction? Was there a point at which you learned to study? Was there a catalyzing event for you that reoriented your focus?
1: Yeah. So, you know, most people would, would think as an astronaut, you must have been the smartest guy in the class, the overachiever. And that is certainly the case with a lot of my colleagues. I mean, I know folks that I've worked with that saw Neil Armstrong walk on the moon and when they were little kids and decided right then and there, that's what they were going to do. And they did the best at everything from there on out until they became an astronaut and was flying. were flying in space, which is great. I wish I could have done that. I think it's kind of a boring story, though. I think it's much more interesting when it's someone like me who couldn't pay attention in school. Spent probably the first uh, 13 years of my education staring out the window, winning, when is this going to be over so I can get out of here? And it was felt like it was impossible for me when I was a kid to pay attention. It's not like I didn't want to. I always went into the new school year with the intention of doing well. And three days into school, I'd be three days behind. And then the rest of the year was just basically on autopilot, not really learning much, not paying attention a whole lot, not getting good grades. I think back then, it seemed like it was easier to do that than I think what I've noticed with my kids today. Uh, I don't think you'd be able to get away with, you know, the amount of effort I put in then. But I could just remember it being impossible for me to pay attention, basically having the feeling that if you would have held a gun to my head, To force me to pay attention, I wouldn't have been able to do it. That's how I felt. And I think, you know, I probably have like ADD or ADHD, never diagnosed. So that's probably why I had such a hard time. And it wasn't until I got to college and I was still, uh, you know, still struggling, didn't know how to study, really didn't do well. Eventually, I'm not even going to class uh, anymore uh, or at least much. Basically, you know, on the fast track of uh, how a lot of kids experience their first year of college, you know, basically one and done, you know, one year and, and you're done. And then I was just walking across the college campus, just happened to walk into the bookstore, uh, not to buy a book. I was probably, you know, going there to buy gum or some other non-educational related thing. Uh, <laughs> maybe they sold beer there. I don't know. Who knows? (laughs) But I, I remember seeing this book on the end of the aisle, you know, where they highlight the stuff that they're trying to sell. I think it's called like the end cap or something of of a bookshelf. And, you know, there was this book that had this very patriotic red, white and blue cover, a cool title, caught my eye, made me pick it up. Wasn't a big reader at the time. So it's kind of unusual for me to, Actually buy a book like that then and uh, read the back, found it interesting, looked through the first few pages, took my gum money or my beer money or whatever it was and uh, bought the book, walked back to my dorm room and then uh, opened it up and basically didn't get out of my bed for the next few days. Just reading the, uh, the stories of the fighter pilots, military fighter pilots and test pilots that became the original Mercury, Gemini and Apollo astronauts. And, The book was The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. You know, something in that book just really sparked my imagination. I think it's probably partly his uh, creative nonfiction writing style that was just really caught my attention and my imagination. It was the fact that I felt like I could relate to the people in the book the guys that were he was writing about they were all guys at the time not anymore and, you know there are obviously a lot of female astronauts now but back then there was only men and uh, it felt like i had a, something in common with them and you know with regards to like risk taking and putting myself in challenging and risky situations uh you know the the adventure of it really spoke to me but then i realized I am not a good student, and these guys you know most of them went to the military service academies I think uh, pete conrad went to went to princeton I mean they were very accomplished uh, students before they were pilots. But I thought to myself, you know if I could just fix that one thing about me, you know if I could learn how to pay attention and study and do better in school, perhaps I could change colleges, change majors, become a get an engineering major, the place I was at wasn't quite working out for me, and get a commission in the U.S. Navy and go fly fighter planes off of an aircraft carrier, maybe become a test pilot, maybe quite possibly an astronaut someday. So, you know, that inspiration, I think, is important. That's what I tell kids that also a lot of parents, you know, if their kids are struggling, I think... You can tell them all you want that they have to do better, but you really have to show them why they need to do better. You know, There has to be that thing, that inspiration, that spark that just provides inspiration to get people moving in the right direction. And that's what Tom Wolfe's uh, right stuff was for me.
0: And later, you shot him an email from space with a photograph of yourself with that book, if I am getting my facts straight, uh, which just is such a, an incredible full cycle sort of return to the origin in a sense. Yeah. And, and uh incredible prose writer, as you noted, just a, a wonderful craftsman of of nonfiction. What happened or what did you change after that inspiration? Was it valuable because it aligned your academic focus in a way where you were simply choosing courses that were more oriented towards that path? And that is what helped you to then find a different sort of vector of, <laughs> of progress? Was it just, despite your difficulties with attention, was it just doubling down because now you had a, a better reason? What changed?
1: Well, hey, let me just comment first on you, you mentioning the, that email, which his response was so Tom Wolf-like in that he had words in there that were not really words and outrageous punctuation. So it was a pretty cool email to get back from him. But, you know, in my case, it wasn't really focusing on like new subjects that were more in line with being an engineer or pilot, because those were really the subjects I had the most challenge with, like math, as an example, I wasn't really a great math student, or actually, I wasn't great at anything. But for me it wasn't necessarily like a change of course or like you said a vector or doubling it was more the doubling down on the fact that no matter how hard I've tried in the past that didn't work and I just have to try a lot harder to force myself to learn how to learn really was the first challenge of the next year after I read Tom's book and I decided that this is what I'm going to do I um yeah I just had to do it kind of brute force method by myself. I think today you would have a lot more help, especially yeah. if you have diagnosed ADD or ADHD. There would be, be ways to get support and assistance. But for me, strictly the brute force method, like chain myself to my desk, don't move until I can figure out how to do this pre-calculus problem. I remember that being a big struggle at the school I was at. But eventually, you know, like like many things, you know what I what I've always found in my career, whether it's in the military, in the Navy, you know, flying airplanes, whether it's at NASA, and that is how good we are when we start something is not related at all to how good we can become at anything.
0: When did you first and maybe you just had the confidence from the get go after reading Tom's book? Was there a point after you chain yourself to the desk, you double and triple down with this brute force method? Was there a particular point where you thought to yourself, I can actually do this? I I believe that I can forge a path that will take me to where I want to go.
1: Well, I don't know if confidence is the right word. I don't I've I've always felt that kind of like a below average guy performing at an above average level. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a good place to be because if you get too confident, I think you get lazy. And, you know, once I figured out what I needed to do, I always felt like I needed to work harder than other people because maybe I didn't have as much natural smarts or talent or ability. So there was never a moment where I ever got confident There was kind of a turning point, and that is from a learning and education perspective, and that is eventually I figured out how to study well enough that I was able to change schools, I changed majors, I became an engineering major, but now I'm starting my freshman year all over again, but still haven't really cracked the code on what it takes. It was coming up on Columbus Day. I went to a school called the State University in New York Maritime College. It's in the Bronx. It's a college that has a military regimental system, which I felt like I had to have that. So that was the primary reason I went there. The other reason was it was really one of the few places I could get into because I had such bad high school grades and my first year college grades weren't all that great, but I needed that kind of discipline and uh, structure. I felt like I did. My brother, who was on a completely different trajectory once we went into high school, was at the US Merchant Marine Academy and asked me a little bit later how he became on a upon a different trajectory because it's actually kind of a funny story. But he was across the river, actually the Long Island Sound at the US Merchant Marine Academy. And he's he was a year wound up a year ahead of me because I, I took that first year mulligan on college. <laughs> but we were coming up on Columbus Day weekend. So it's kind of the beginning of the school year almost. And I call my brother up and I say, Hey, some of our, our friends are having a, um, a, a frat party at Rutgers, some of our high school friends. And I was thinking of going there for the whole weekend, you know, leave on Friday, come back on Monday. And I called my brother and I said, Hey, you want to go with me? And he's like, Yeah, I got some work to do, I get some tests next week. And then he says, "He goes, Hey, have you had any tests yet? like a calculus test. I was my, my first year of calculus. And I, I said, no, we, we have one next week. And then he like immediately like cursed at me, yelled at me, and so basically said, what the hell are you doing? I mean, you've never been good at this. You have this motivation to like change your path in life. And you're thinking about going to a frat party and spending the weekend at a, at a frat house and I go, yeah, well, you know, the tests at the end of the week, I'll study on, uh, you know, when I get back, he says to me, he goes, you should be doing every single problem in every chapter multiple times until you can't stand it anymore, because that's what it's going to take. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not too sure I'm going to listen to him. I actually really wanted to go to this frat party. And. But I decided he had gotten good grades through high school and was doing very well where he was in college. And I thought, well, maybe I'll listen to my twin brother after he was yelling and cursing at me on the phone. And uh, yeah, I did what he said. And then at the end of the week, I took the test and I got 100. And then (laughs) from then on, I basically knew what it took to do well. And that is for me, what has always taken for me is just know as much as you can about anything you're doing. And then even if you fall a little bit short, you're still not going to fall so far that you're failing or doing poorly. Yeah.
0: That story also makes me think of someone I know named Jersey Gregorek. He's a Polish born Olympic weightlifting champion, has a few world records. And his expression is, easy choices, hard life. Hard choices, easy life. (laughs) So I mean, flashing back, choosing to do those problem sets three, four times instead of going to the frat party, I mean, that's sort of a, seems like a defining example of the hard choice, at least the emotionally hard choice. I'd like to ask you about failure and how you relate to failure, So I'm going to take a, take a left turn because I know you've spoken a lot about space. This doesn't have to be space specific. It could be related to it, of course, but how has a, how would you say a failure or apparent failure has set you up for later success? In other words, do you have any favorite failure in retrospect that in some respect kind of planted the seeds for a greater success later?
1: Well, you know, failure is an option, I think. It's uh, something that uh, we all probably experience, and hopefully we learn from it and and move forward. Certainly, my early education was one big failure after another. I'm not proud of that. Wish I could have a do-over. It's actually one of the greatest regrets of my life, and that is sitting in class for 13 years, not paying attention. You know, talk about a colossal waste of time. I wish I could have a do-over on that. You know, other failures that would set me up for success. The first time I qualified to land an F-14 Tomcat on the ship, I disqualified. My first landing, the hook of the airplane, the tail hook, actually hit the back of the aircraft carrier, the stern, you know, the part that goes down towards the water. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was one and done on that. Sent home, you know, had a stern talking to. I was given an option of actually going to fly a cargo plane that the uh, commanding officer thought, well, maybe that would be easier for me because my first uh, (laughs) experience at the ship was so ugly. But, you know, I was given another chance. And, uh, you know, in this situation, I just thought to myself, I'd never flown a big airplane before, didn't even know if I could do that. But I thought, you know, if I'm going to fail at something, I might as well fail at something that I think I might not be able to do, rather than right. something that's easier, because at least this way you kind of know what you're, where you stand, you know, like what you're capable of. I always feel like if we're not always moving that bar higher and risking failure, then we're not really reaching our potential. And the people I've come across, not only at NASA and the military and industry are the people that are really successful are the people that are willing to take the risk of failing. And oftentimes I'll come across kids or adults that they don't want to do something because they think they might not be able to do it. But what if they are able to? They would never know. So to put yourself out there, to expose yourself to failure, I think is something that everyone. Should strive for because if they don't, they're never going to be able to see what they could possibly achieve. Now, now, hopefully, the the, the risk taking I'm talking about is not something that would get you killed. It almost got me killed on a number of occasions, but uh, yeah, hopefully, it's not those kind of risks. But career risk, you know, other kind of risks in putting yourself out there for. Maybe getting a degree you don't think you're capable of, applying for a job you think you might not get, those kind of risks are something. I think people should be challenging themselves like that all the time.
0: It it makes me think of uh, this quote from Larry Page, one of the co-founders of Google, that I'm paraphrasing here, but he often observes that... Something that's easy to miss is that if you aim really big, it's quite difficult to fail completely. Now there are examples, uh, certainly within the context of flying, where that <laughs> does not apply. But in a lot of these other areas, like you mentioned, career decisions, etc., even if you fail, meaning you don't reach your objective, there can be a lot of carryover benefits that you don't get if you aim really small. But let's go back to the F-14 Tomcat. How fast are you moving when? you land such a plane? I know it's variable because it's changing as you're on the approach, but what's the range of speed as you're, my understanding is the F-14 Tomcat is about 50 feet wide and how wide is the aircraft carrier or the landing portion?
1: I'm not sure how wide the landing area is, but it's not much wider than the airplane. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have a whole lot of margin. Uh, The airplane lands, it depends on the weight what weight you're landing at, but it's somewhere around 150 miles an hour. Not the fastest landing on on the ship. You have to land relatively slow. The T-38 that we flew at NASA would land at like 170 knots. So the F-14 is a little bit slower. But the thing about the Tomcat or any airplane that's landing on the ship is not only are you trying to land on this very small runway, but that runway is constantly moving up and down heaving up and down it's pitching bow to stern it's rolling left to right and it's uh moving away from you because the deck is angled as the ship is going forward so and then sometimes it's dark so you can't really see anything either so it's uh it's pretty challenging piloting task actually it's it's harder than landing on the the space shuttle believe it or not difference with the space shuttle is you're not feeling well you're dizzy you might be nauseous you don't have a second chance uh, in that it's a glider, a big glider with uh, very poor flying qualities. And you're only going to get to do this once or twice in your life. You know, everyone's watching you. So it's a lot of of pressure, different kind of pressure in the F-14.
0: Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with, that's the basis, but Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. And right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience, that's you guys, a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure, so particularly in the winter months, adding a vitamin vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. So make an investment in your health today and try the ultimate all-in-one wellness bundle. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash tim. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D for free with your first subscription purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash tim. Aside from your own books, what what are the books that you've given the most as gifts to other people and why? Do any come to mind that you've given to more than one person?
1: I'm looking at my bookshelf in my office here. You know, certainly the right stuff. I've given that to people. Uh, Shackleton's or uh, Alfred Lansing's book, Endurance, which is uh, partly where the name of my book, Endurance, comes from because... That book about Ernest Shackleton and his voyage with his crew of Endurance, the ship to the Antarctic in the uh, beginning of the last century, was really one of the greatest examples of leadership in a very challenging and dangerous environment that I could ever imagine. Uh, I mean, it's just extraordinary what Shackleton, as the leader of that expedition, was able to do when they're ship endurance got stuck in the ice, eventually crushed. And they spent, I forget exactly how long, but it was almost like two years saving themselves. That involved, you know, living on ice packs and uh, transits of hundreds and hundreds of miles and lifeboats in the Arctic, a uh, crossing of South Georgia Island in the winter that no one had ever done before. But Shackleton and a small team of his guys did that uh, as at the end of them trying to save themselves. And he was able to do that. And uh, no one died. None of his crew members died. Everyone survived. That book is very meaningful book for me that I have actually given it to other people. Hemingway fans, certainly, uh, you know, the old man in the sea is a favorite. And I'm also looking at uh, Pearl Buck's The Good Earth. I think I've given that book to other people.
0: What is The Good Earth about?
1: Yeah, so it's about uh, Pearl Buck's The Good Earth. It's, it's brilliant. It's about this guy named, uh, this farmer in China, this peasant farmer that I haven't read it in a long time, but I think his name was Wang Lung. He goes from peasant farmer and survives all these famines and eventually becomes a major landholder. Really a great book, incredibly well written and a uh, great example of like what life was like in that time during China before the revolution and and when they had many, many years of famine and, you know, having massive numbers of people having to migrate as a result. Highly recommended. One of my favorites of all time.
0: That is a nonfiction or fiction?
1: It's nonfiction.
0: Let's talk about scientific literacy for a few minutes. Yeah. So so I am not a scientist. I support a lot of science. I have a basic level of, I would consider it scientific literacy. There is a lot of froth and noise out in the, the world today, certainly magnified by social media and so on in many respects. Could you speak to what happened with respect to Steph Curry and the moon landing? Except this may be an entry point for discussing how people can develop the greater ability to separate fact from fiction. Well, tell you what, I'm not a
1: scientist either, although
0: I do play one
1: on TV occasionally <laughs> in space. I do other... You know, a lot of people think, hey, you're an astronaut. You must be a scientist. No, I'm not a scientist. I've, I've done a lot of science. I think I'm a science minded person. I know uh, what science is, I know what it isn't. And unfortunately, I think in today's society, a lot of people have lost their reality in some ways, where all of a sudden in our society, like science is now opinion or politics. It's not. It's subjective observation. It's evidence. It's experimentation. It's critical analysis. It's peer review. It's always evolving, but it is the truth as we know it at that particular time. The science deniers we have in our society now are dangerous. It's like I used to kind of goof around with the the flat earthers, now I don't even like acknowledge their existence and I probably shouldn't even have brought them up because I don't believe that they should even be given any kind of acknowledgement because it's just so absolutely outrageous. It's like if you're a flat earther, well, why don't you just deny that the sun is in the sky? I mean, the earth is round. I mean, you can go up in an airplane and look out the window and see that it's round. You got to look pretty closely because you're not very high. But if you do look closely, you can see we lived on a curved planet, not to mention that, you know, thousands of years of science has determined that the earth is round. And of course, I've seen it from space and it is pretty round. It's not flat. <laughs> if it was, and if it was flat, wouldn't the edge be like the most popular tourist attraction on earth? I would just go set up a, like a taco truck and, you know, make a billion dollars uh, <laughs> with my, uh, you know, edge of the earth tacos. Yeah. So I generally don't give those kind of folks any acknowledgement because I just think it's so outrageous. And I know some of them do it kind of as a goof and they think it's funny or it's cute or whatever. You know, some people really believe it. The danger is if you're willing to believe that the earth is flat, what else are you willing to believe? That vaccines don't work? That we are not living in a pandemic where people by the thousands are dying every day throughout, you know, around the world, that climate change is a hoax. So it's a, it's a risky thing. You know, with regards to Steph, Steph is an awesome guy. I think he's a smart guy. I think in his situation, he just kind of got caught up in, one, uh, in a thing where he said he just agreed with somebody about the moon landings, probably would not even give it a whole lot of thought. And then he got a lot of heat for it. And I felt bad for him because I like him. I'm a fan. So I just reached out to him and I said, Hey, you know, if you want to talk about the moon landing, I'd be happy to share what I know with you. And uh, he was very happy to have that conversation and to take back his what he said about that because and I and he did he, he wasn't doing anything malicious. He was just kind of agreeing with the guy, a guy who said that and then he was kinda on to the next thing. But a lot of people gave him a lot of heat for it. So
0: We had a little talk about it. I think he understands now. If we look at the spectrum of, let's just call it, sort of scientific, not scientific thinking, but sort of detached on some level, rational skepticism, et cetera, the ability to navigate the world and to the best of our ability, separate fact from fiction. It does seem to me that. There are people out there who are not, let's just say, flat earthers, right, or or, or people who are trying to convince you of of God knows what (laughs) that is just, it seems clearly at face value ridiculous to the people in the middle who really don't know how to best discern what is true and what is not. And I think vaccines are a great example uh, in the sense that I have many friends who I would consider in many many domains to be very smart high performing effective people who do not even know where to begin with vaccines just in terms of claims from friends certainly different they're, sites on the their facebook friends
1: that are claiming to be
0: experts on this stuff yeah or they or those facebook friends link to a site that seems to have citations and they just I mean, I will. I will just say, like these people I'm talking about, some of them are not. They're not people I would consider broadly stupid people at all. So, how can someone who wants to become more discerning and capable in sifting through the noise become better tuned? Do you have any suggestions for how they can cultivate that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not an expert on. Many, many things. And, you know, there are things that I know a lot about, things I don't know a whole lot of, about. But when I don't know about those, I ask the rocket scientist of whatever that thing is. I get my information from trusted sources, government agencies that are the authority on the pandemic, like the CDC, the World Health Organization, these kind of places, media outlets that you know have been there for a long time and that have a reputation, not your crazy uncle on Facebook, not people you've never heard of. So it's just shocking to me that people will just discount things that are the truth without even trying to go find out what the real story is. And just saying, well, I I just don't believe. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Yeah, you don't have to be a a scientist to understand science. And even if you don't understand it, you know, find the person that's the expert and believe them because they're the experts, right?
0: Let's talk about something that you are, I would think, very qualified to comment on, and that is possible future missions to Mars. I, I would love to just hear your thoughts on the feasibility or attractiveness of future missions to Mars in part because there are many diverging opinions here you have for instance you have Elon Musk on one side of the spectrum you have then also people like Jeff Bezos who I believe have publicly said you know the last thing you want to do is have to deal with gravity and the environment on Mars like once you get into space you want to build communities in space as opposed to on another planet for a host of different reasons. And if you you mentioned Shackleton. So if you like the idea of being on Mars, you should try living in Antarctica for (laughs) a few months and then let me know how you feel since that's pretty temperate and forgiving compared to the ecosystem on Mars or the climate at least. How would you suggest people think about or how do you think about uh, missions to Mars?
1: Yeah. So, you know, a few things come to mind. You know, one, one is, and I'll, I'll quote my brother and give him credit for this because he said it, and that's the only place I've ever heard this. And he says, going to Mars is not about rocket science. It's really about political science because, you know, we know much of what we need to know technically about how to do it. But if we're going to really do that someday, put people, put boots on Mars, it's really more about having the money." the political support, and the public support. It's going to take people to vote in to office, you know, science-minded people that feel like this is important. You know, I do think we can do it. We could probably do it pretty soon. There are some challenges. I I think we need better life. You know, our life support systems probably need to be a little bit more robust. We certainly have to protect the crew from radiation, whether we have some protective materials, or we just get to Mars quicker, so they're not exposed to radiation for that long. But it's something that we're absolutely capable of doing, and I think we should do. I don't think, though, we need to look at Mars as a lifeboat for planet Earth. Now, I say that having been wrong about things that Elon has said before. So, you know, when he was going to land his, the first stage of the uh, Falcon rocket on a ship and reuse it, my initial thought was he's crazy, but then he went and did it and he did it again and again and again and again. So I will never say Elon's crazy again, but I always think it'll be easier to live on earth regardless of what bad thing might happen to it. And I also think it's important that we need to recognize that really this is our home. We need to take care of it. We're not going to move the whole planet to Mars. I think it's important to go to Mars and, uh, you know, establish a foothold. Uh, It's great that we've had a foothold in space. We're coming up on the 20 year anniversary of having people in space continuously. So kids that are alive today have never been on planet earth with everybody else. And I think we should continue to do that. I think we should go to Mars someday. I think we should have people living on Mars, but I don't look at it as a plan B necessary as a planet B kind of thing. Yeah. I do think, you know, this planet could be pretty well destroyed and and i don't think we should do that but it could be and it would still be easier than living on mars living here
0: what are the most compelling arguments for the importance of getting people to mars or more simply asked why do you think it is important because it would involve of course very significant cost
1: yeah i i think going to mars is you know it's going to be expensive but that expense is paid with uh you know very uh high paying jobs that recently there was this NASA study that talked about the return on investment so you know NASA is a money making prospect in that it generates more tax dollars than it it uses a mission to mars would be the same thing a mission to mars would develop technologies that we may not have today maybe it won't i don't know it may it may not It'll definitely push our envelope of what we are technically capable of doing. I think it would be a great way to cooperate internationally. You know, we have a lot of conflict here on Earth, but we've been flying yeah. on that space station with the Russians for the last 20 years, and it gives countries that are sometimes in conflict with each other, a place to work on something that is peaceful, that benefits everybody. I think that we're explorers. I think it's in our nature, our DNA. I don't think we would have developed to be the species we are today if we didn't explore. I think it's part of who we are and we should continue to do it. And then I think if everything I said was wrong, the fact that that kind of mission, that going to Mars, going to the moon, the space station, the space shuttle, The space program in general, it inspires kids, not only in the United States, but around the world to be better students, to study math and science and STEM careers, to be better at those, in those areas of study that are so, so important to our economy. Because all those people, all those kids around the world that are so inspired by NASA, they're not going to work for NASA. I mean, some of them will, but all of them aren't. You know, they're going to go into other fields that contribute to our economy, our society, and our way of life. And if that's all we got out of it, that's worth every penny. I mean, if the six or whatever billion dollars we spend a year on human spaceflight, if the only thing we got out of that is that kind of inspiration for our kids, which I don't think it's the only thing we get out of it, but if it was, worth every
0: cent. Here, here. Thank you for that answer. Let's talk about go for lunch. So subtitle How to Dream Lead and Achieve. This is your two-hour audio course on knowable. Why did you produce this audio course? And what do you hope people will gain from it? You know, I
1: think, you know, my my life story has a lot of lessons in it that I think will help other people and inspire other people that they can do things that maybe they didn't think they were capable of. They can take risks, they can challenge themselves, they can I'm hoping that people will look at this as a way to find uh, maybe more success in their own lives. And I've done that with the public speaking I do. I've done it with the books that I've written. And this is just a, a new way of reaching a, a different audience. I didn't, really didn't know much about Knowable before I was approached to do this. But when I learned about it, I was like, hey, that's a really good idea. You know, people like to listen to books on tape now, especially a lot more recently and why not listen to something that is not a book, but has a uh, you know particular lessons uh, from different kinds of people? So, for those that don't know, Knowables it's a it's a new app that gives exclusive audio courses from different types of experts. Chris Paul is one of them. Alexis Ohanian, me, a bunch of. Other people, it's basically kind of like listening to uh, Spotify, but it's for learning something. And, uh, you know, hopefully people will learn something that will help in their lives from the audio course I was able to put together. They can find this course on knowable.fyi forward slash Scott. At least that's what they told me, uh, where you can find it. <laughs> and uh, hope I said that right. And uh, Yeah, I hope people enjoy it. There's some some humor in there. I tell a couple of jokes every now and then. I hope people find them funny, and I uh, hope they enjoy it.
0: <laughs> and we'll link to that also for everybody in the show notes, since that's heavily trafficked at tim.blog forward slash tim. So we'll link to everything, including noble.fyi slash Scott for folks. Just uh, maybe two more questions, and then uh, we can bring this round 1 to a close wait round 1 uh, there's a, <laughs> there's a round 2 <laughs> I always want, you know, I like saying round one. We, we, I could say this conversation, but <laughs> if it gives you more anxiety that you enjoy, I could say this is round one of 17 to the forthcoming indefinite series with Scott Kelly. No, this is this is the end of the conversation. Right. So I always like to say round one, just in case there's a round two. I hung I up
1: right there when you said round one. <laughs> I'm out
0: understandable understandable so two questions the first is and these are sometimes dead ends and i'll take the blame if they are but we'll we'll give it a shot so the first is if you could put anything on a gigantic billboard this is metaphorically speaking to get a message or a question an image anything out to billions of people what might you put on that something non-commercial
1: Right now, I'd say something like science is real.
0: Believe it. Yeah, science is real. Believe it. Yeah, what a world we live in.
1: Yeah, right? You're, you had to, yeah. Imagine Galileo coming or Newton coming to this, uh, this world now. They would lose their minds.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I saw a cartoon at the beginning of the pandemic which featured this guy, clearly that's sort of the husband and wife couple and the husband sitting at his computer. And he says, honey, it's amazing. Last week, all of my friends on Facebook were constitutional lawyers. And this week they're all epidemiologists. Yeah, right. (laughs) So search for the signal, folks. All right. The second question is, and this might seem like a bizarre question, but I'm curious. When is the last time you cried tears of joy that you remember?
1: This might be a answer you're not expecting or weird, but I don't think I ever have maybe uh ever yeah, I don't think so Tears oh. of joy no nah, yeah i'm not a i'm not a, I'm not much of a crier
0: <laughs> there's no crying in space <laughs> no crying in space, no crying in baseball people all right <laughs> well, Scott, is there anything uh that you would like to say just as closing comments, any recommendations or asks of the audience that you would like to add before we
1: close? Well, you know, s- certainly I think, you know, having this platform and an opportunity to speak to your viewers and that is, we're living in some really crazy times right now. And uh, I've had the privilege to see people work in some really challenging environments and uh, things that, that are very risky things that you might not even believe is possible and and we're able to be successful success requires teamwork and i think our country just needs to realize that we just got to have to start working together i mean we can't live in this divided society where people are in conflict with one another because we have some serious challenges and the way you meet those challenges is, is with teamwork. And that has been my experience, my whole career at NASA. And I just wish more people would just kind of come together, identify problems, do it in a thoughtful way, believe in science, solve those problems and then move on to the next thing. And, uh, I'm just very hopeful that we can get there and, uh, hopefully get there soon. Science
0: is real. Believe it. And, uh, This is a great place to end. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time today. I know this is a long form conversation (laughs) and I appreciate you carving out the time to have a chat and to share your life lessons and to answer my sometimes obvious, sometimes peculiar, sometimes in the middle questions. So thank you very much for carving out some space to do this. Hey, thanks
1: for uh, having me, Tim. I uh, very much enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: And to everybody listening, You can find show notes, links to everything we've discussed at tim.blog forward slash podcast. You can find the Noble course at noble.fyi forward slash Scott. And until next time, thanks for tuning in.
1: I'm grateful that throughout my 20 years at NASA, I had the chance to work with a wide variety of people from different backgrounds. I flew in space with a French engineer a school teacher from Idaho, a Swiss astrophysicist, and more Russian cosmonauts than I can count. He spoke different languages, believed different things, problem solved in different ways, and when you're trying to do something as challenging as flying in space, you need as many different strengths as you can get. And then I met Katie. When I was preparing for my first long duration space flight, I was slated to overlap for a majority of the 159 days with Katie Coleman. Katie was a military officer in the Air Force, a chemist. She was a veteran of two space shuttle missions just like me. But Katie and I were as different as two military officers can be. In fact, some of our colleagues were seriously concerned that we might kill each other. For months, we would have to cooperate and live together in a space the size of the inside of a 747 filled with stuff. So when Katie first arrived, I could see why people had been worried. Katie didn't entirely live her life by schedules, and I would often find her in the little window-filled module called the cupola looking at the earth and playing her flute at 3 o'clock in the morning. Throughout the workday, I always knew what Katie was working on because she would leave experiments and projects half done or there would be scraps and remnants of her activities just floating around. I used to call it a Katie trail. But whatever else she needed to do, Katie always made time to speak with people on the ground, especially school children, even beyond the many events that NASA schedules us for.
0: Hi, my name is Shake, and my question is How do you dispose trash on a space station? Shake, you have an excellent question for exactly this week. It is very difficult. We can't just.
1: She made time for art and music, even playing the first Earth Space Duet on her flute with the founder of the band, Jethro Tull. It was one more aspect of our personalities that couldn't be more different. I had always seen the public relations part of my job as a nuisance. It needed to be done because the public has a right to know what's being done with their tax dollars and to feel involved in the space program. But I'm not a newscaster or a YouTuber and I didn't really enjoy being pressed into service as one. I felt that my job was to command the space station, carry out the many complex procedures and experiments I was tasked with to run a tight ship, to keep my crew safe, and obviously, to keep everything from exploding. One day we had a standard public affairs interview. Here's what I sounded like, answering questions in my factual, straightforward, are we done yet tone. We got up here about uh, a little over a 100 and something days ago. Not that I'm counting, but uh, felt like I picked up just where I left off last time. This was not my favorite part of the day. Later, Katie confronted me. She said, you know, if you don't sound excited about what we're doing up here, no one else will be either. She was right. I learned a lot by watching Katie. And by the time I flew a year-long mission on the space station, you could certainly hear the difference. And you
0: actually packed a gorilla suit in your gear, which is incredible.
1: You know, it's, it's interesting when you vacuum pack something, it doesn't take up a whole lot of room. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for one, when you try to get kids' attention, and, and teach them about science and math and engineering and things like that, the first thing you have to do is get their attention. And nothing gets people's attention like a gorilla in space. By this time, I'd figured out Twitter and Instagram. I'd been building up the year in space hashtag. I did a Reddit AMA. I showed off the first flower we grew in space. I played water ping pong and had a Super Bowl party for one. I juggled fruit which is still impressive, even though the fruit just kind of hangs there. I also explained how I had to clean up a gallon-sized ball of urine and acid. I explained that space smells like burning metal, and that my favorite David Bowie song is not space oddity, but probably under pressure. It wasn't what I thought I had been trained for, but this kind of work was able to bring all kinds of people into the experience of our mission and bring them closer to science, engineering, and the amazing things we accomplish when we all work together. But it was Katie with her flute and her always positive attitude that made that possible. We all learned a lot from each other up there. In training to fly on the Russian spacecraft, I spent a lot of time in Russia, getting to know the culture and learning to speak the language. Not very well, I might add. I've had the chance to get to know Russian literature and history in a way I never expected. There's always potential for conflict and challenges, particularly with the Russians. Our countries are not always the friendliest. I guess you could call us frenemies. But in space, you set all that aside. Because we rely on those cosmonauts, and they rely on us. Space is a great place to do that, because no one owns it. It's a common ground where peaceful scientific collaboration can occur. I've learned from my colleagues who grew up in different cultures, practiced different religions, and were born with different sexual orientations. It's only been very recently that NASA has recruited astronauts who openly acknowledge a same-sex partner, and I hope to see a transgender astronaut in my lifetime. I have a transgender son who is one of the smartest and kindest people I have ever had the privilege of knowing. And it would be a loss to NASA if they didn't choose to include people like him among the ranks someday. In retrospect, I think the people who told Katie and me we would kill each other in space underestimated both of us and overlooked the power of our differences. I try to keep this in mind when I see people who seem very different working together, and I want to encourage them to see their differences as strengths. And what we referred to in the military as a force multiplier katie and i are now lifelong friends and when i think of the mission we flew together i hope she remembers as fondly as i do the times i'd find her playing her flute in the cupola and couldn't help but tell her katie go to sleep it's a school night i don't care if you're friends with jethro tull Sometimes people are incentivized to dodge, blame, or even cover up their mistakes. And I've seen this in action as well. The Russian Space Agency has a very different way of managing and compensating their cosmonauts than NASA does its astronauts, and part of that has to do with how blame is distributed. Both astronauts and cosmonauts are paid extra when they are flying in space. In the case of the cosmonauts, they get a significant bonus of somewhere between 350 to 700 US dollars per day depending on how experienced they are. So for someone like my friend Gennady who has spent 879 days in space, that can really add up. By contrast, American astronauts are paid the government per diem rate $5 per day. But our salaries are much higher to begin with, which means we are less dependent on that bonus for our livelihoods than the cosmonauts are which is where the problem comes in. Cosmonauts are given higher bonuses for their achievements, like a successful spacewalk, and lower bonuses to reflect mistakes, for flipping the wrong switch, missing a step in an experiment, or similar everyday human errors. And you might not believe this, but there's actually a real person in Russian mission control whose only job is to track the mistakes of cosmonauts And when each cosmonaut comes back to Earth, they have to sit in a room with the mistake tracker and an accountant to determine what their bonus is going to be. I've experienced firsthand the way this sort of negotiation is supposed to work. When I was preparing to fly on the Russian Soyuz spacecraft, I trained with my crewmates in a simulator, much like the simulators I've trained on in Houston to fly the space shuttle. After our final simulation flights in Russia, we would have to answer to a panel of Russian space agency officials about our performance. Kind of a public stoning, I would call it. It took me a while to understand that we were actually expected to create an elaborate excuse matrix about how we hadn't done anything wrong, how everything was somebody else's fault, and that no blame should be attached to us. I came to think of this practice as blame-smithing, And some people were quite skilled at it, bending the narrative of events to always move the blame away from you and towards some other poor bastard. I was terrible at this, but that was fine with me. And I think it annoyed the Russians that during the public stoning, when it was my turn to make an impassioned speech about how I didn't flip the wrong switch, i just say, yep, that was me. Now, once we were in space, the question of blame got real for my Russian friends. They were always dealing with the possibility of losing their income to the smallest mistakes, so i tell them to blame me. As far as I could see it, it was a win-win. They wouldn't lose their bonus and their control center wouldn't spend a day trying to figure out what went wrong because they were avoiding responsibility. Real teamwork means it's crucial for everyone to admit their mistakes. If you want to solve problems, move fast, and make sure everyone's doing their best, you can't punish people for speaking up. That's true in space, but it applies anytime, anywhere. In my experience as a space shuttle crew member and later as commander of the International Space Station, I learned how important this was. On the space shuttle, if I had actuated the wrong switch at the wrong moment, always a possibility with 2,000 of them, I might have caused 100 people in mission control to spend hours or even days trying to figure out why their data looked funny and not focusing on what is important. It's so much better to just be honest and move on. And if that doesn't work, you can always say, the American did it.
0: of Goodness! Before you head off for the weekend, so if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by 99designs, the global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find and work with amazing graphic designers online long time listeners of this podcast know how much attention i pay to detail how obsessively i approach nearly all elements of my work because the small things often end up being the big things. so whether it's your logo your business cards website design even your email templates all of these visual elements tell your customers tell your users who you are and what you're about. So I think it's worth sweating the details. I've been using 99 Designs for years now to ensure that many of my creative projects, whether big or small, are as cohesive, professional, and beautiful as possible. I've worked on draft mock ups of book covers. I've worked on all sorts of things. Most recently, I've been working with a designer at 99 Designs to update the illustrations and layouts for all of my downloadable ebooks. I've developed a really great working relationship with the designer who goes by the username Spoonlancer and I intend to continue working with him to bring ideas to life one project at a time. I've also used 99designs for all sorts of high-end illustration for different books like the Tao of Seneca, you can see a bunch of examples on my Instagram that I've put up. And they've turned out better than I possibly could have hoped. So from logos to websites, to packaging to books, 99designs is the go-to creative resource to build your brand on any budget. So check them out. Right now, my listeners, that's you guys, can get $20 off plus a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. Contest is a great way to get started and find the right designer for long-term work. You can also book a free design consultation with a brand expert at 99designs to receive personalized branding advice over the phone. Their hands-on team has helped thousands of business owners at this point. It's a great way to get the most out of your experience with 99designs. So take a look. Head to 99designs.com slash Tim for your discount and to sign up for design consultation today. That's 99designs.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Rockform. That's without a C. R-O-K-F-O-R-M. Rockform is the active lifestyle iPhone and Galaxy protective case company. I've been using their stuff for a few months now, and good God, they can survive anything. First off, Rockform protection is beyond great. You can find thousands of five-star reviews and customer testimonials, which the team at Rockform calls survival stories that include things like a drop from the upper deck of a baseball stadium and a 75-foot cell phone tower fall. It's kind of unbelievable, but these cases make your phone virtually indestructible. Each case is built also around an integrated magnet that is completely safe for your phone. The magnets are incredibly strong, and allow you to instantly attach your device to any magnetic surface toolboxes, file cabinets, refrigerators, golf carts, you name it I use it in the gym to check my form a lot of the time. You can just slap it on just about anything. Rockform pioneered magnetic technology in the mobile accessory space in 2011, and I've never seen anything quite like these magnets. I will use mine on my Peloton bike so I can watch, listen, or take calls during workouts. It fits my iPhone 11 Pro Max perfectly and allows me to keep my hands free for all sorts of stuff. All their cases also come with a built-in twist lock system that can be used with any of Rockform's optional mounts for Bike, motorcycle, car, and much more. These machined aluminum mounts are built to last and are compatible with every rock form case. So, If you get a new phone or whatever you just need a new case and it will still attach to all of the mounts rockform also has a portable golf speaker this is bluetooth that instantly mounts to a golf cart with mind-blowingly strong magnets like i mentioned i don't really golf but i will use this bluetooth speaker to listen to music in the kitchen i'll slap it on the refrigerator i will use it in the gym and hang it from a carabiner which is included with the speaker and so on and so forth. So upgrade to a Rockform case today because you have better things to hold on to. You can use your hands for other stuff. And like I mentioned, these things make your phone bulletproof. And as a special offer for Tim Ferriss Show listeners, that's you guys, get 25% off. That is a good discount. 25% off at rockform.com. That's R-O-K-F-O-R-M.com. When you use promo code Tim, that's 25% off at R-O-K-F-O-R-M.com. When you use promo code Tim, one more time, rockform.com, promo code Tim.